As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts. As you're turning there, let me just refresh your memory. We've been working through the book of Acts, and Peter has stood up on Pentecost, and he has begun to explain to the vast crowds that have gathered around him the significance of the events that have just taken place, the events that they had just experienced, they had heard with their ears, that they had seen with their eyes. The Spirit of God has been unleashed upon the church of Jesus Christ. The sound of a rushing wind and the sight of what appeared to be flames of fire had descended upon all of the believers, the 120 who were gathered together. The crowds reacting to this phenomenon begin to ask questions. What does this mean? And so Peter stands up and begins to boldly proclaim to them the truth about Jesus Christ. He tells them that all that they are experiencing is evidence that this is the time, the new time that they have been waiting for. It is a new era. It is a new day. And it is new because the Messiah has come, the one that they have been anticipating, the one that they have longed for, the one who will literally change history has appeared. The only problem is, is that this long-awaited Messiah is the very one that they put to death by the hands of the Romans. Peter has, has unpacked the scriptures. And this really is one of the most phenomenal, powerful sermons in all of the word of God and perhaps in all of history. This sermon is full of Christ. It is full of scripture. It is full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is full of divine power and divine truth. The question that remains to be answered is this. How will these people respond when confronted with the truth? That same question can be asked of you and I this morning. And while this sermon specifically speaks to the gospel message, it speaks to Jesus Christ and our response to him, the question about responding to truth is certainly evident throughout all of scriptures. Whenever we're confronted with the word of God, whenever we're confronted with the truth, the question is how will we respond? God has given the truth a designed purpose and he has within the truth a desired effect he is looking to produce in the hearers of truth. In fact, all the way back in Isaiah chapter 55 verse 11, the prophet said this, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here in this final kind of climax to Peter's sermon, what we see here is how the truth begins to take root in the hearts and minds and lives of those who hear it. And we see kind of a a pattern forming here as the truth is being presented. We then see how it begins to take effect in their lives, producing a chain reaction. This is God's desired design and effect, and what we see here is helpful for us as we think about how we respond to the truth of God's word. So let's read from God's word and pray as we do so that God would work powerfully through it. Now it says in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. As we see the truth unfolding in the lives of the hearers, the first thing we realize is this first, that truth produces deep conviction. Here, remember that the conviction they are experiencing is in regard to the message that Peter has already proclaimed. And so specifically, this refers, listen, to the truth about Jesus Christ, that he is in fact the Lord and the Messiah that they have been waiting for. He's been the the anticipated Messiah, the son of David, the one who will sit upon David's throne and will rule and reign for eternity. Peter has proved that by going back to the scriptures, but he's also demonstrated that this is not only simply the Messiah, that this Messiah they've been waiting for is actually the Lord God Almighty. He is God in human flesh. And you have to place yourself in their shoes for just a moment. If you had heard what they heard, if you had been thinking about what they had been thinking about, if you had been exposed to what they had been exposed to, listen, only 50 days earlier, they themselves, through the hands of the Romans, had put to death this Jesus. All of a sudden, the scriptures are being expounded to them. They're unfolding. They're gaining clearer and clearer understanding. And the shock and horror of the moment is beginning to settle in. They're beginning to realize the horror of what they have just done. Certainly, there is no greater sin than rejecting Jesus Christ, is there? They knew very well what it was to reject Jesus. They had been responsible for handing him over to the Romans to be killed like a common criminal. And in this moment, they are thinking about the reality that they had pierced the Messiah and now in turn, the word of God is piercing their souls. The the phrase there, cut to the heart, implies a sense of brokenness. They're not only convicted, listen, about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished, they're convicted about what they have done. And there is beginning to form in their hearts as they realize what's happened, a sense of brokenness. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 3, blessed be the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the idea there of brokenness, the the blessedness that comes from brokenness, excuse me, the poor in spirit is the sense of brokenness. That there is a response to this conviction. There is no one who experiences the gift of salvation who does not first experience the weight of conviction brought about by the truth of God's word. Jesus had said in John 16, 18 that this happens when the spirit comes. There will be an overwhelming sense of conviction brought about by the spirit of God. It's on the screen behind me here. John 16, 8. And Jesus said this, and he, when he comes when he has come, will convict the world in respect of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And here we are seeing that the Spirit of God is working in the hearts of humanity, those who are being exposed. Now notice this. Secondly, notice how the Spirit works. He works always in conjunction with the truth. 
In fact, the author of Hebrews says this about the word of God, the truth, in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. And listen to this, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. You see, the word of God is the sword that drives right into the heart of humanity. And in the context of of Hebrews chapter four, that's the context of judgment, of being exposed to the sin in the heart. And we see these two, trends, two, two, two twin truths operating hand in hand together because Peter has just laid bare the scriptures, the truth of God's word, and the spirit is now taking it and driving it deep into the hearts of those who are hearing. God's desire in conviction is to break us and to save us. That's what he's pressing into their hearts. He is looking to break their stubbornness, their rebellion, their rejection of him. He's desiring to expose their sin and the reality of what it has done. And here's the problem. You see, it's possible to experience deep conviction, but the question is, are you listening to that conviction? Are you responding to that conviction? Are you paying attention to that conviction? Resisting conviction will harden and destroy you. Responding to conviction will break and save you. Conviction is that experience we're all too familiar with, isn't it? We know what it is when we are presented with the truth, when we are presented with what's right and wrong. We have that experience in our conscience where it is pricked, where we're forced to confront the right way and the wrong way where we're forced to confront what is true and false, what is moral, what is immoral, what is sinful, or what is pleasing to God. I think you can think of conviction something like this. Conviction is that warning signal that God gives us as he informs our conscience, as he informs our hearts and minds to the truth. It's a warning saying, hey, don't do that, don't go there, do what's right, honor me. I love when you get into a car and you, you fire up the ignition. Instantly, what do you hear? Come on, the first service, they're all thinking about this. Yes, thank you. Well, we got one. Well, we got a winner. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, <laughs> that's what you hear, right? You, you crank the ignition. All of a sudden, you're hearing beep, 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 beep. What is that doing? That's warning you to do what? Put on your seatbelt. Now here's the problem. You can sit in your car with the warning bells going off, ding, 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 and if you're anything like me, in my car, the longer you let it sit, the faster and more annoying it gets, right? It's like ding, 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 ding. It's like, come on, Ian, hurry up, put it on, let's go. Now, but in my car, if you ignore it even for a little bit longer, you wanna know what happens? It just shuts off. See, conviction in the Christian life is just like that. God confronts us with the truth, and it's like that warning bell going off, that ding, 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 ding. Like it's telling us, don't do this. Don't do this. Do what's right. Do what's going to save you. Do what's going to protect you. Do what's going to bless you. And the longer we ignore it in our hearts and minds, sometimes God ramps it up, right? He'll confront us in in more painful ways, more frustrating ways to our sinful flesh. He'll put it right in front of our face. It's loud, and it's just, you know, don't you wish that cars would just say, just like, just really loudly yell at you? Just just put your seatbelt on. I wish my car did that. I wish it put it on for me. That would be even better. There are cars like that. I just can't afford them. 
think so often in the Christian life, we hear the warning signs of God, we're experiencing the conviction, but in our foolishness, we begin to ignore it, and where it ramps up, we ignore it even further, and pretty soon, the voice of God becomes so silent, we can barely hear it. Where once God is shouting, stop it, don't do that, all of a sudden becomes a quiet whisper. He says, the grace of God to warn us, isn't it? It's the grace of God to tell us what is right, what is wrong, what's going to bless us, what's going to hurt us. And how many people in this life look back with great regret because they failed to heed the warning signs in their car and did not put their seatbelt on? How many people have no chance to look back in regret because they failed to heed that warning sign? I had a friend in high school who went right through the windshield of his car and died instantly. All because he didn't listen to the warning sign. When he first got in the car, he could have saved his life. He could have spared his family all kinds of misery and destruction. Listen, how much more foolish those that hear the voice of God loudly and clearly and choose in willful disobedience to ignore it. How many people have ruined their lives, utter destruction because they failed to respond to the warning of God, don't do this, don't do this. How many people have been utterly destroyed, have lost everything because they failed to respond to the convicting power of God's word and God's spirit. How many people, listen, will lose their very soul because they are hearing clearly God crying out to them and they will not respond. God, help us, help us to respond to the word of God and the spirit that is convicting us by his grace. Really, I guess the question is simply this. As we experience conviction, am I hearing it and am I listening to it? Let me help you out a bit of this because, listen, the conviction we experience is a good thing and it leads to true change in our lives. So the question we need to ask is, how can I experience this? The first thing you should do is this, exposure to truth. Exposure to truth should be one of the number one priorities in the Christian life. This is the means by which God changes us. This is the means by which the Spirit of God works in us. The Spirit of God, listen, always, always, always is working in us in line with the truth of his word. Your exposure to the truth needs to be regular. It needs to be consistent. I mean, it just needs to be constant in your lives. That's why daily Bible reading should not be, listen, it should not be just some kind of thing you do here and there. It should be every day exposure to the word of God. Church should not be optional for the body of Christ. This is the place where we come to hear from the voice, hear from God, right? This is all about the exposure to the truth, and so we need it daily, regularly. Secondly, though, here's here's also what we need to consider, is we need desire for truth. Your exposure to the truth will only be helpful if you truly desire the truth. So what does that look like in my life? Well, it looks simply like this. I mean, do I long for God's word to break me and to change me? When I open the word of God, is, is this one of your prayers in the morning as you open God's word? God, would you convict me by your word? Would, would you speak to me, Lord? Would you show me my sin? Would you expose areas in my life that I'm not aware of that are hurting me and hurting others and hurting you? When you open the word of God in the morning, do you pray Psalm 119, verse 18, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold the wonderful truths in your law. 
let me ask you this. When you come into church in the morning, it's a little bit of conviction, right? Not me, Holy Spirit, okay? Uh, when you come into church, do you ask God, God, would you speak to me today? God, would, would, you, would you actually, Lord, open my heart up? Would you, Lord, by your word and by your spirit, would you speak directly to me where I'm at today? Right? When you walk into your small group, are you just going for like the social time, uh, you know, maybe, maybe going to give some answers that you've thought of in the text, or are you walking in saying, God, speak to me. God, show me my sin. God, help me to change. I need to know, God. When you, when you come into the word of God, is that your heart's desire? So how do I know when I'm listening? Well, I think they give us a great indication. When you respond like they do, look at what the word of God says in verse 37. Here they are, they run up to Peter and the rest of the apostles and they say, brothers, what shall we do? There's a longing in their hearts to respond to the truth. And as James 1.22 says, don't, don't be hearers only of the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Be faithful doers of the word of God. You see, here we learn from them that conviction requires immediate obedience. You see this pattern forming where God exposes them to the truth, which provides conviction, but that conviction requires a follow-up. It requires immediate obedience, and that's why they're crying out, tell us what to do, and Peter does not equivocate. He gets right to the point in verse 38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, can I just say as a preacher, um, every preacher longs to hear these words when he preaches. People rushing, saying, what do I do? And here we see just how the Spirit is moving so powerfully in their hearts to break down any and all barriers to the message. And so Peter gives them two requirements which actually are really just one requirement. They're two sides of the same coin. He tells them, repent and be baptized. Repentance was part of the earliest Christian preaching. I mean, repentance is all throughout the Old Testament. The people of God were constantly falling into sin. They were constantly being called back to God, and they were called to repent of their sins. John the Baptist came declaring a message of repentance, repent and be baptized, he said. He pointed towards Jesus who came and declaring the first message Jesus ever preached was repent. Repentance is foundational to the Christian life. And just as no one can be saved without experiencing conviction of sin, nobody can be saved without experiencing repentance over sin. Now, the word repentance itself indicates, in the Greek mainly, a change of mind. But the context really helps shape a, and gives a fuller understanding. You see, the Hebrew word for repentance was a much fuller, broader, all-encompassing kind of meaning. And, and remember the crowd that Peter is preaching to. It is, it's predominantly, if not completely, Jewish. And so when they hear the word repentance, they think back to the Jewish concept of repentance, which includes not just simply a change of your mind, but a complete change in your attitude and behavior. Your entire life is turned literally a 180 in the opposite direction. This is a total radical reorientation of life that is being called for here. 
This is the common understanding, this idea, uh, not simply, although listen, changing your mind is necessary, particularly they were required to change their mind about Jesus Christ and about who they were, but this requires a full turning away from sin to God. And let me just give you one example of this in Acts Uh, chapter 26, the apostle Paul is preaching uh, to King Agrippa and he says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent, listen to this, and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. This is the all-inclusive picture of repentance. It's a stopping in one direction and a turning to go in another direction and the fruit of repentance will demonstrate or prove the authenticity of repentance. Let me give you maybe a little bit of an example of this. You say maybe, how do I know my repentance is real? And I think all of us, we wrestle through this question at different times in our lives. When we're confronted with the word of God, uh, we can respond a couple of different ways. And so um, maybe just to give you a visual, I'm gonna need some help. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on somebody here. And Philip, you are the man. Uh, why <laughs> Philip, why don't you come on up here for a second? You can leave your Bible there. Philip, a faithful friend and a faithful elder uh, who holds this word of God up even to me in my life. And I'm grateful for that. Um, so I'm just gonna give you my Bible. It carries more authority than yours. I'm just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> Just, just kidding. The authority is the word of God. Uh, so you can just hold it up nice like this. Yeah, boom, right there. Okay, so, so look, we can be walking in this life and we can be kind of moving in this direction, walking on a path of sin and maybe ignorantly, maybe we don't even know we're walking in sin. Maybe we do, but all of a sudden we come face to face with the word of God and maybe a faithful friend holds it up in front of our face. Maybe we're hearing a sermon that's confronting us with the truth. Maybe we open it in the morning and, and just the word of God is convicting us. It's showing us who we are and what we have done. Now, now we can do this, right? We can see the truth, we can understand the truth, and we can say, I don't care about the truth. Uh, So could you just maybe step aside, just move. Thank you very much, but no thanks. Every one of us has that option, don't we? And how many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have actually done that very thing? But listen, there's another response. You can turn back. You see, we can, we can be walking in our sin and in the same way the word of God is held up and somebody confronts us or we're just, you know, we know what we're doing is wrong And we can even in a moment stop and we can maybe in in a sense of feeling ashamed or guilty or embarrassed. Maybe we got caught in sin and somebody's like, you know, you shouldn't do that. You know, God's word is very clear. We can can do this. We can say, yeah, you're right. And and would you forgive me? And uh, you're right. I know I need to change. And, And we can say that and it can appear, listen, it can appear that we're actually changing. But in reality, what we start to do is this. We say the right things. We might even think the right things, but, but all of a sudden, we start to kind of sidestep around, you know, as if, as if the, you know, we don't want anybody to see us. Let me see if I can just get around this and keep going in the same direction that I was going in. You see, that's not true repentance. You can say the right words, but listen, this is what 2 Corinthians 7, the apostle so- said, this, this is worldly sorrow that leads to death. It's not the real thing. The real thing actually has evidence that verifies whether or not it's true. And that is this, this, that's this picture right here. It involves walking up to the word of God and somebody holds it up and, and it's opened up and, and you see it like a mirror and your sin is just in your face and you can't deny it. And all of a sudden, you know, regardless of what anybody else thinks, there's a brokenness in your soul. 
and, and you say, oh my goodness, you repent, you, would you forgive me, and God, would you forgive me, and you turn like this, and you begin to walk in the opposite. Now, thank you, I'm gonna take this, and you can st- take this with you in reality, okay, just metaphorically and literally, it's always good. Put it in your heart, and so you see, you walk in the right direction. That is what the Bible says is genuine, true, authentic repentance. It's sorrow, godly sorrow, that leads to repentance that is without regret. It is an entirely different way of life. That is what the Bible requires when we come face to face with the truth, especially the truth about Jesus Christ. It means this, I can no longer be my own God. I can no longer be my own king. I can no longer live for me. Genuine repentance says, I recognize that what I have done is sinned against God Almighty, and so I must confess that, and I must forsake it by turning by his grace and in his power, and I must begin to walk in newness of life in an entirely different direction. That's the picture of repentance. And that's exactly what Peter is calling people to. You once lived like this. You once did this. You were once responsible by your sin and by implication by handing Jesus over to the Romans for the death of Jesus Christ. Now, now, confess that. Forsake it in turn. See, what's the difference between those two? If I can maybe boil it down, you know, between the true and the false repentance, here's what I would say. One is sorrow over what it costs you. Right? One is sorrow over what it costs you. Oh, uh, this is going to really hurt my reputation if people find out what I've done and, 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 and maybe I can lessen uh, uh, the consequences if I just kind of you know, agree that I've done this and I just kind of apologize to the people I need to. You see, it's all about me. And that's the kind of repentance that will never truly last and cannot truly save. Listen, one is sorrow over what it costs you. The other is sorrow over what it costs God. True repentance is when you look and you see that what you have done is not first and foremost against any person. You have actually violated and tarnished God Almighty. You've sinned first and foremost against him. And in your heart, you cannot bear the thought of what your sin has done, what it has cost that God had to send his one and only son to pay the penalty for your sin. So maybe just to summarize, uh, repentance is turning from God, excuse me, from sin to God. Here in Acts 2.38, this is talking about a radical reorientation of life with respect to Jesus Christ, expressing sorrow for rejecting him and then ultimately bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. He then calls his hearers to be baptized, and notice this, in the name of Jesus Christ. The command to be baptized expresses really the positive side of repentance, which involves calling upon the name of the Lord for salvation. It means, in a sense, expressing faith in Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished and expressing your allegiance to him as your Lord and your Savior. Baptism expresses faith and belief in Jesus Christ. That's that's really what it's pointing towards. And you'll notice, this is so significant, they're to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, baptism was something that was common. There were ritualistic baptisms in the Jewish culture, and a lot of it had to do with cleansing, cleansing from sin, cleansing rituals, identification with a group of people. And so what Peter does here is he shows them who it is that they are to be aligning themselves and identifying themselves with. 
Now you have to see how significant this is in the context. These are the same people who have just said, crucify him, crucify him. These are the same people who have handed him over. They've declared him to be a pseudo, a false messiah. They've declared him to be a heretic and a traitor. They've treated him like a common criminal. And now Peter is saying, that guy, this Jesus, you need to stand up and say, oops, I was wrong. He's now my Lord and my master. Now for us in this culture, it might not be that big of a deal. But to them, they are making a definitive break from their Jewish religious culture. And the Jewish religious system, it ran every aspect of life. I mean, to make a break from Jewish cult, from Jewish, their Jewish religion, excuse me, is to make a break in so many different regards. It's to ostracize yourself from the community of God. You're de-synagogued, you're excommunicated, your family turns their back on you. Socially, you'll have no friends, no family. Economically, this would cost you everything. If you own a small business and this was your way of getting through life, nobody wanted to do business with you anymore. To be baptized in the, in the name of Jesus, to identify myself with Jesus, would mean this. It's going to cost me everything. Experts in uh, Muslim evangelism have suggested that baptism should either be delayed um, not made public or refashioned in some contextualized way in order to avoid persecution, excommunication, or death. And we know all too well as we, we see the world we live in, we see the news, and listen, Muslim-dominated cultures, it could cost you your life if you commit yourself to Jesus Christ, right? And while the temptation to avoid a public alignment with Jesus is real, and while the dangers are real, while the threats of death are real in many parts of the world, what you need to understand is this, that was very real for them in this context. And the answer that is given is not, let's, let's somehow minimize baptism, it's the opposite of that. Even in the face of great persecution, even in the face of potentially losing your life, the, the, uh, here's what Peter is saying. You need to publicly declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ, regardless of what happens. And think about what this will do. This instantly begins, doesn't it, to separate the true and the false conversions. Instantly, you know, everybody who's saying, like, no way, there's no way I can do that. I, I like my life, right? The cost is too great. Can you hear the words of Jesus there? Yeah, just count the cost. So Peter is not making this easy. I love that. When you think about evangelism, you know, the objective is not to make it as easy as possible for people to, to believe. The objective is to present the truth for what it really is. And you know what the honest truth is? It's hard. It's costly. It could cost you your life. Peter doesn't shy away from that. He's, he's boldly declaring, align yourself with Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus doesn't want any secret followers. He doesn't want anybody who claims the name of Jesus to somehow hide it from the world around. Just the opposite. He wants us to let our lights shine, amen? And not hiding it under a basket, but letting it shine for all the world to see. We are the only hope for the world. Let me make just a couple observations about baptism here that I think are helpful. 
um, there's a slide up behind me here. I'll just roll through these quickly. Just notice this first. It's personal. Did you catch that in the text? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. It's an individual activity, an individual response, because salvation is personal and individual. Your faith in Jesus is about you and your relationship with Jesus. Nobody gets into the heaven on the coattails of their friends or their parents. So the baptism is personal. Notice the secondly, it's public. Again, we've, we mentioned this, but there's no secret followers in God's kingdom. And so this is a public declaration that Jesus is who he says he is, and I am submitted to him. He is my Lord. He is my master. Third there, it's prescribed. In other words, this is not optional. This is a command given by God. This is, this is mandated for everybody who declares the name of Jesus Christ. This is, of course, seen also in the Great Commission where uh, the disciples are commanded to go into all nations and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? This is commanded. This is normative for the life of the church. And some of you have been saved and you haven't done this and and just just gently I need to say to you uh, the Bible commands you to do this. You need to make a public declaration that you have given your life to Jesus Christ and that he is the Lord of all. He is your king and he is your savior. Well you say well when should I do that? Well that's the next point. It's a priority. In the sense here in the text, did you notice this? Peter links them so tightly together. It's, it's almost like bang, bang. Re- repent and have faith. Believe in Jesus and get in the water for crying out loud. Like, let's tell people. Let's make it known that Jesus is Lord. Let's make it known that he has saved you. And so it's a priority. It's, it should be very closely tied with conversion. You shouldn't have a delayed period. And, and if you fail to do that, what I would say is this. You need to wrestle with this in your heart. But uh, if, 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 if it is a command and it is to be a priority and you're not doing it, then I would suggest to you this. It's possible that you're living in sin. And so I would just say gently, I'll get in the water as quickly as possible. Um, next, notice this, it's pointing. And that's the very nature of baptism is this. There's nothing supernatural going on in the sense that there's something happening. This is symbolic. This is pointing uh, towards something. And, and this is a sign. It's telling people, it's a, we, we like to use this phrase, this is a, an, an outward expression of an inward reality. And the Apostle Paul connects so much in with this, but initially, the idea of baptism reflecting you know, the water, the washing away of sin. But Paul links so much more into this in Romans chapter six, and he says that this, essentially, what is being depicted here as you go under the water is your death to your old self. You're identifying with Jesus Christ in a, very, in a positional way. You're going under, you're, you died with Christ, and you're raised, washed, cleansed of sin, and you're raised to newness of life. And so it becomes a powerful picture that is pointing to an inward reality. Our hearts have been made new. We were once dead, but now we're alive. We were once sinners, but now we are cleansed. I just want to really quickly hit uh, some reasons why why some people don't uh, get baptized. Maybe you're wrestling with getting baptized and you've been thinking through this. I'm going to see if I can hit some of the reasons why some people don't. First is this. Some people say, I don't understand. Well, hopefully you do now, right? That's good, I respect that. If somebody doesn't understand baptism, then they shouldn't be doing it. But once you do, right, once you know the truth, you're now responsible and accountable to obey the truth. Uh, secondly, 
maybe some people say this, well, I have sin in my life. I've had people come up to me and say, well, I'd get baptized, but I just, I got too much sin going on in my life that I need to deal with. I feel like I gotta get that dealt with first. And can I just tell you that that is the opposite picture of what baptism is trying to project, right? The point in baptism is this. I didn't have my act together. I was full of sin, right? I cannot do anything on my own. I cannot save myself, but God saved me. He washed me. He cleansed me. And so if sin in your life is preventing you from being baptized, then you need to just hear this. Baptism is the picture of your salvation, and in the same way that you cleaning your life up had nothing to do with your salvation, so too it should have nothing to do with your baptism. You need to obey in this area. Maybe, uh, maybe you're, you're just sitting there and just wrestling with, with this issue. I just have a fear. I have a fear of crowds. I have a fear of speaking in front of people, and I totally get that. Like, that's legitimate. People, I've seen you know, people just kind of lock up in front of people, but what I can say to you is this. Look, fear of man cannot trump fear of God. And, and, and this, again, it's required by God. And so in faith, trusting God, you need to step forward in obedience and do what God calls you to do, believing that he's gonna give you everything you need to do it. Do you believe that? And then there's some people who simply say this, well, I just don't want to. And, and to that, I would just graciously and simply respond, then perhaps you're not actually saved. Saved people tell people. Saved people want to make it known that they have identified themselves with Jesus Christ. And the bottom line is the only legitimate excuse is that uh, to not be baptized is that you're not saved or perhaps you're not old enough to understand what's really happening but everyone else gets dunked, okay? That's what the Bible teaches. Um, Conviction requires immediate obedience, and that involves in in the realms of salvation and sanctification. So the issue for you and I to wrestle with is this. Am I experiencing conviction, and am I obeying? Am I responding to conviction? Thirdly, notice this. Obedience embraces promised grace. Obedience embraces promised grace. Peter makes two promises for those who repent and accept Jesus as the Messiah. Notice this um, in verse 38, the second half there. He says, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. He calls them, excuse me, he promises them that they will receive two things. They're very obvious in the text. The first is this, the forgiveness of sins. And secondly, they would receive the Holy Spirit. He holds out to them the promised grace of the gospel. And just imagine again the shock and horror of these people recognizing, seeing what they had done, what they had participated in, their culpability, their responsibility, the weight of conviction would be so, so heavy upon their hearts. What have I done? How could I have done this? Is there any hope for me? Is it over? Is this sin too great for God to forgive? You ever felt that way? And perhaps, perhaps some of them are wrestling with the thought that they would never feel forgiven even if they asked for it. 
Maybe you felt like that too. Maybe you've struggled in your life even as a Christian because you simply don't feel forgiven. You, you're still struggling with sin and you, you, you've asked for forgiveness but you don't feel forgiven. And the hope that's given in this passage, listen, is this, that forgiveness is not a subjective feeling. It's an objective reality. It is a promised fact. And our hope is not in the way we feel, amen? It's in what God says. Now, some have tried to use this passage to teach that baptism brings about salvation. That's the doctrine of baptismal regeneration, that at the moment of baptism, in other words, baptism is required for you to be saved. And as you're saved, you're made new, as you're baptized, excuse me, you're actually saved and made new in that moment. Now, here's the problem with that view. That would add a work to salvation. You see that? It would require a work, you to do something to be saved, rather than what the Bible teaches from cover to cover, that you must have faith in Jesus Christ, that you must repent and believe. We know this can't be true just for a a number of reasons. One of them is that which I just said. It violates the rest of scriptural teaching. There's a a basic Bible study principle that's helpful for you to know, and that's, that's this. Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. It can't. It has to be harmonized. It has to fit together. So you might look at this, and here's the problem. If you read that, just kind of at a cursory reading, it appears that baptism is a condition, doesn't it? It's a condition for your salvation. But when you line this up with the rest of Scripture, what you see is this, that salvation is unmistakably by faith alone. In fact, most passages that deal with salvation have, never, have no talk about baptism whatsoever. Let me just give you a few examples uh, John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, the issue there is belief, it's faith. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's faith, Acts 16.31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And my favorite, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Secondly, this ignores the immediate context. If we're just faithful to interpreting this passage in its context, and that's part of the problem, people hijack it out of its context, and, and you can make a verse say anything you want it to say by doing that. But the context, remember, it's teaching this, that baptism is proving their repentance in faith. It's publicly identifying with Jesus. It really is, in one sense, the fruit of repentance. That's the main idea in this passage making a definitive statement to follow Jesus Christ. And baptism demonstrates that statement. Thirdly, notice this, the interpretation of this passage. And this is difficult to see if you don't know the original language, but again, the cursory level reading appears to read one way, but that's not necessarily the sense in which it has to be read and understood. That word for there can actually be translated and given the sense of this, um, on the basis of or the grounds of forgiveness. 
So in other words, these things, the, the baptism and the gift of the Spirit, they're happening as a result of, of the, the forgiveness that's been granted on the basis of that forgiveness that's already been granted because of faith in Jesus Christ. All right, now that's all the technical stuff, but here's what I desperately don't want you to miss. Don't miss the heart and soul of this passage. This this passage is all about the forgiveness of sins. You think about what he's holding out to them. They're asking the question, can I ever be forgiven? Really, isn't my sin far too great for God to forgive? And, And listen, the greatest sin that's ever been committed, the rejecting and handing over of Jesus Christ is being offered full and complete pardon There is nothing, nothing, no sin too great that cannot be forgiven. That is what Peter is declaring. Your great sin can be covered by great grace. Isn't that wonderful news? This is the essence of what Peter is declaring. I was reminded this morning, Pastor Brian has been reading a a book, and he just reminded me as we were talking about this passage a little bit about um, David's psalm, Psalm 32. And the author that he was reading said this, that the, listen, the greatest joy a human being can experience is found in the forgiveness of sins. Isn't that true? Knowing, listen, that though your sins were like scarlet, that they can be washed as white as snow, knowing that though your sins were like crimson, that you can become white as wool, you can be made pure in the eyes of God. All of your sins, no more guilt, no more shame, no more condemnation. Everything wiped away all because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the gospel. And David declares in Psalm 32 verse 1, how blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How happy, how joyful ought we to be that our sins have been covered by our merciful Savior. Amen? We have been granted a full pardon. It is freely given. It is pure grace. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. And then, after he had bared the full weight of God's wrath, he stepped out of the grave. He rose back to life and he declared that death is no more. Death no longer has power over God's people. The sting is removed entirely. And just to put a stamp of approval on the whole thing, he rose victoriously, exalted to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns over all the world. Isn't that awesome news? Promised forgiveness is granted to all those who look to Jesus Christ. That's what Peter is declaring. And secondly, notice this, the promised Holy Spirit. So not only are your sins forgiven, but remember what the Spirit of God meant in this context. The Spirit of God had just been unleashed upon the people of God. And and the Joel prophecy comes back into play here. Right? I, I wish Moses said that all God's people would have the Spirit poured out upon them, that they would all prophesy. And here, Peter is saying, that time is now. Now, not only will all your sins be forgiven, but you will have new life. You will have the Spirit of God poured out upon you. The Spirit of God will dwell within you. You'll be given new life, radically transformed by the grace of God. Your heart will be made new. You will have the presence of the Spirit of God giving you greater intimacy with God, greater knowledge of God. You will have new power over sin and over temptation 
You'll have new power to accomplish the mission that God sends you on and you will have a new hope that is found only in this new life that Jesus can provide. This is the hope that saves you. Notice verse 39, for this promise is for you. It's personalized and by the way, it's for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What's he talking about here? He's saying this, listen, listen. The spirit of God is the declaration of hope that God is not finished with you or your children. Who's that? Israel. God's not finished with you, Israel. I'm not done with you. There's still a plan for you. Your salvation is coming and you're still gonna be useful to go to the nations. Who's the far off in here? Who are all those who are far off? You remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13? He says the far off are, are, listen, are us, the Gentiles. Do you see the new hope is this, that God is going to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. He's gonna just bring them all into one family, and that family will exist in the presence of God for all of eternity. I just wonder this morning, let me ask you, are you living in that promised grace? Are you living in light of these promises of sins forgiven or are you living in your you know, shame and guilt still? Are you still kind of beating yourself up over your sin? Are, are you still rejecting God's grace and saying, no God, I'm too bad, you can't forgive me. Are you putting yourself above him in that regard? Are you living for the hope of now? Are you living for this world here? Or are you saying, I am a child of God, I have been washed and cleansed, I've been redeemed, and I've been given new life in Jesus Christ, and I've been given a promised eternity with him, I've been given everything I need in this life for godliness. Finally, understanding this kind of grace compels faithful followers. It compels faithful followers, and I just, I think what we see here is a powerful portrait of faithful proclamation by Peter. Listen, this entire sermon is one just magnificent, grand display of powerful evangelistic proclamation. He's unpacked the scriptures in such a profound way. The Spirit of God is working and moving. He's explained things in such great detail and irrefutable proof in one sense. And yet what we see here is this, after it's all said and done and people are saying, what shall we do? How should we respond? Some people we see are going to respond in in a massive way, but there were others who are still wrestling with what's going on. And so he says this, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. See the patience there with Paul? saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. That is a compassionate plea to the people. This is not like raining down condemnation. How dare you, you pathetic sinners. This is a plea. Would you see that you, like this generation, will perish in the judgment unless you turn to God Almighty for his salvation and grace? He just persistently pleads with sinners. He bore witness, I love this, uh, with many other words. Highlight that in your Bible and continued exhorting them. I just want you to see that this is biblical justification for preaching long sermons, okay? I mean, clearly this sermon, like obviously it was at least an hour, right? <laughs> what we have here, here's what this tells us. We have a snapshot of what Peter preached, okay? We have a summary of what Peter preached on that day. But it didn't end, you know, if you, if you read this, you, you, you read in like two and a half, three minutes, the entire sermon of Peter. But, but what we see here is this, look, there was so much that Peter said, so much that he wanted to explain. And so we ask her the question, well, why? 
Well, here's why. Because some of them clearly needed further proof. Some of them clearly didn't quite understand. Some of them needed to be persuaded further. And in the grace of God, this is instructive for us, listen, in the grace of God, Peter patiently continued working with them, teaching them, instructing them. He persuasively argued the logic of Scripture. He showed them, I guarantee you, this is what he did in his sermon, I guarantee, this is the pattern of apostolic preaching. He went back to the Word of God and he continued to unpack it. Just what a great example for us. I mean, some of us, listen, some of us in here, and we've given up hope, haven't we? We've been ministering to people, we've been praying for people, we've been pleading with God to save people, or we've been pleading with people, and some of us are ready to throw the towel in. Can you just look, can you learn from Peter here that they're like, in grace and in compassion, persist with people, be patient with people. Learn, listen, learn to take them to the word of God and explain the truth to people and let the truth do its work in the hearts of people. Again, maybe, maybe some of them, maybe the reason that Peter had to continue to exhort them is because some of them couldn't get past their sinful actions. They couldn't understand how God could forgive them for what they've, they'd done, and maybe that's you, and if that's the case, listen, let's just pause and consider the one who's preaching this sermon. Just 50 days earlier, listen, 50 days earlier, Peter had been full of presumption and pride just 50 days earlier on that fateful Passover night, he fell in one of the most wretched, pitiful, spiritual plunges in all of history. You remember, he, he went out and while he wanted to be aligned with Jesus, he denied Jesus three times, just like Jesus said he would. And on that third time, it was so, it's so powerful, right? He denies Jesus, I don't know who you're talking about. He looks across the courtyard and the bloodied, beaten Jesus Christ gazes at him and the two of them lock eyes. And in that moment, Peter is utterly shattered. It's the weight of conviction of what he'd just done, denying, rejecting Jesus Christ, the sin that must have just overwhelmed him. And in that moment, listen, the Bible says that he broke and he ran out and he wept bitterly. He was utterly emptied of himself. Perhaps Peter was wondering, am I ever going to be useful to God? Would God ever even forgive me? How could, I ever, how could I ever serve God faithfully now after what I've done? And yet, remember that day Jesus came to him after he had risen from the grave. And he stood on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he looked at Peter in a loving pre-Pentecost restoration. He sat with Peter and he asked him three questions. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And feed my sheep. You know, three times, right? The three denials matched by the three gracious responses to Jesus. And the call for Peter is this, Peter, I forgive you, and I love you too. Now go out there and faithfully follow me. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And here, Peter is responding to the grace of God, isn't he? What God had done so graciously to him in confronting him with his sin and restoring him with his grace, now Peter stands before the people who had rejected Jesus and he stands and he says, come back to God. Save yourself from this crooked, from this perverse generation. God is gracious. He will forgive you. I love that Peter declares the truth and lets it do its work. And he does so with great grace, with great compassion, for he knows that he was a sinner redeemed and saved by the grace of God. 
but he doesn't shy away from the truth. He proclaims judgment. He speaks of sin. Do you notice this? Let this instruct your heart. He doesn't apologize for the truth. He doesn't try to water the truth down. He declares it with boldness, with courage, with compassion, and with love, and he holds out the only hope for sinners. There is hope in no other name under heaven. Now repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and I would be doing you a disservice this morning. Listen, listen, everybody look up here. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, if you've not bowed the knee to him, listen, I don't know what you're waiting for, but if you do not fall under the weight and conviction of the Spirit of God and turn from your sin, you will be judged and you will spend eternity in damnation. This is no laughing matter. This is not trite or trivial. This is not a scare tactic. This is the truth of God's word. And yet, listen, God loves you so much that he sent his one and only son And if you would turn to him, he would wash you white as snow. He would embrace you as a child. And he would set before you the hope of new life with him for all eternity. So listen, I'm just going to ask you this right now. If that's you, listen, stop resisting and rejecting the Messiah. Turn to him right now. Confess your sins, repent, and embrace the grace of Jesus Christ. On that day, 3,000 souls received the word of God and were baptized. And I love this word, and they were added that day. They were added as redeemed sinners saved by grace. And those sinners who had received such grace, I guarantee you what we see beginning to happen throughout the book of Acts is those sinners can't keep silent. They must go. They must tell. Let me ask you this morning, if you have been saved by the same grace of God, if you have the same confidence of life in him, will you go for him? Will we be a great witness to great sinners of God's great grace with great confidence? 3,000 were added this day with one sermon. What if God's people mobilized as an army with the gospel would go to the nations and declare the grace of God for sinners? That 3,000 are evidence of one simple fact, and I'll close with this. Jesus Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Amen? God, would you give us Give us all that we need to go to this world. Father, would you help us to respond in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? Lord, would we even in this place not shy away from the conviction that you're producing in our hearts? God, may we respond with action. May we, Lord, desire and long, Lord, to obey your commands. May we go to the nations and may our hearts, Lord, be so fired up and fueled by the grace that's been shown to us in Jesus Christ that we cannot but help tell those around us. God, help us. We are so weak. We're so fearful. We're so self-obsessed and self-absorbed. God, would you just strip away all of us and may you become everything to us. Father, time is short. This world and our lives are fading. And there are people who need to know that there is a God who saves. Strengthen us, Lord, to go. Strengthen us, Lord, to be faithful. We pray this in the mighty and strong name of Jesus. Amen.